Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan, and work worry-free wherever you please. With continual development in technology, hackers and cyber criminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run-of-the-mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real-time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, Use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic English audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This podcast is brought to you by my store. I will publish all my audiobooks in podcast format here, but if you really want to support me in making these or just want to listen to them when disconnected from the internet, then you can buy my audiobooks for five bucks at theessentialreads.myshopify.com. The link will be in the description. Let's get started. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells Chapter 17 The Thunderchild Had the Martians aimed only at destruction, they might, on Monday, have annihilated the entire population of London as it spread itself slowly through their home counties. Not only along the road through Barnet, but also through Edgware and Waltham Abbey, and along the roads eastward to Southend and Shrewsburyness, and south of the Thames to Deal and Broadstead, poured the same frantic routes. If one could have hung that June morning in a balloon in the blazing blue above London, Every northward and eastward road running out of the tangled maze of streets would have seemed stippled black with the streaming fugitives, each dot a human agony of terror and physical distress. I have set forth at length in the last chapter my brother's account of the road through Chipping Barnet, in order that my readers may realise how that swarming of black dots appeared to one of those concerned. Never before in the history of the world had such a mass of human beings moved and suffered together. The legendary hosts of Goths and Huns, the hugest armies Asia has ever seen, would have been but a drop in that current. And this was no disciplined march. It was a stampede. A stampede gigantic and terrible. Without order and without a goal, six million people, unarmed and unprovisioned, driving headlong. It was the beginning of the rout of civilization, the massacre of mankind. Directly below him, the balloonist would have seen a network of streets far and wide, houses, churches, squares, crescents, gardens, already derelict, spread out like a huge map, and in the southward, 
blotted. Over Ealing, Richmond, Wimbledon, it would have seemed as if some monstrous pen had flung ink upon the chart. Steadily, incessantly, each black splash grew and spread, shooting out ramifications this way and that, now banking itself against the rising ground, now pouring swiftly over a crest into the newfound valley, exactly as a gout of ink would spread itself upon blotting paper. And beyond, over the blue hills that rise southward of the river, the glittering Martians went to and fro, calmly and methodically, spreading their poison cloud over this patch of country, and then over that, laying it again with their steam jets where it had served its purpose, and taking possession of their conquered country. They did not seem to have aimed at extermination so much as the complete demoralization and destruction of any opposition. They exploded any stores of powder they came upon, cut every telegraph, and wrecked the railways here and there. They were hamstringing mankind. They seemed in no hurry to extend the field of their operations, and had not come beyond the central part of London all day. It is very possible that a considerable number of people in London stuck to their houses through Monday morning. Certain it is that many died at home, suffocated by the black smoke. Until about midday, the Pool of London was an astonishing scene. Steamboats and shipping of all sorts lay there, tempted by the enormous sums of money offered by fugitives, and it is said that many who swam out to these vessels were thrust off with boat hooks and drowned. About one o'clock in the afternoon, the thinning remnant of a cloud of the black vapour appeared between the arches of Blackfriars Bridge. At that, the pool became a scene of mad confusion, fighting and collision, and, for some time, a multitude of boats and barges jammed in the northern arch of Tower Bridge, and the sailors and the lightermen had to fight savagely against the people who swarmed upon them from the riverfront. People were actually clambering down from the piers of the bridge above. When, an hour later, a Martian appeared beyond the clock tower and waded down the river, nothing but wreckage floated above Limehouse. Of the falling of the fifth cylinder, I have presently to tell. The sixth star fell at Wimbledon. My brother, keeping watch beside the women in the chase in the meadow, saw the green flash of it far beyond the hills. On Tuesday, the little party, set upon getting across the sea, made its way through the swarming country towards Colchester. The news that the Martians were now in possession of the whole of London was confirmed. They had been seen at Highgate, and even, it was said, at Neasden. But they did not come into my brother's view until the morrow. That day, the scattered multitudes began to realise the urgent need of provisions. As they grew hungry, the rights of property ceased to be regarded. Farmers were out to defend their castle sheds, granaries and ripening root crops with arms in their hands. A number of people now, like my brother, had their faces eastward, and there were some desperate souls even going back towards London to get food. These were chiefly people from the northern suburbs, whose knowledge of the black smoke came by hearsay. He heard that about half the members of the government had gathered at Birmingham, and that enormous quantities of high explosives were being prepared to be used in automatic mines across the Midland counties. He was also told that the Midland Rail Company had replaced the desertions on the first day's panic, and was running northward trains from St Albans to relieve congestion from the home counties. There was also a placard in Chimming Onger 
to announce that large stores of flour were available in the northern towns, and that within 24 hours, bread would be distributed among the starving people in the neighbourhood. But this intelligence did not deter him from the plan of escape he had formed, and the three pressed eastward all day, and heard no more of the bread distribution than this promise. Nor, as a matter of fact, did anyone else hear more of it. That night fell the seventh star, falling upon Primrose Hill. It fell while Miss Elphinstone was watching, for she took that duty alternately with my brother. She saw it. On Wednesday, the three fugitives, they had passed that night in a field of unright weep, reached Clemsford. And there, a body of inhabitants calling itself the Committee of Public Supply seized the pony as provisions, and would give nothing in exchange for it but the promise of a share in it the next day. Here there were rumours of the Martians at Epping, and news of the destruction of Walter Abbey powder mills in a vain attempt to blow up one of the invaders. People were watching for Martians here from the church towers. My brother, very luckily for him as it chanced, preferred to push on at once to the coast rather than wait for food, although all three of them were very hungry. By midday, through Tillingham, which, strangely enough, seemed to be quite silent and deserted, save for a few fugitive plunderers hunting for food, near Tillingham they suddenly came in sight of the sea, and the most amazing crowd of shipping of all sorts that it is possible to imagine. For after the sailors could no longer come up the Thames, they came on to the Essex coast, to which Harwich and Walton and Clacton, and afterwards to Fulness and Shoebury, to bring off the people. They lay in a huge sickle-shaped curve that vanished into the mist towards the Nays. Close in shore was a multitude of fishing smacks, English, Scotch, French, Dutch and Swedish, steam launches from the Thames yachts, electric boats, and beyond were ships of large burden, a multitude of filthy colliers, trim merchantmen, cattle ships, passenger boats, petroleum tanks, ocean tramps, an old white transport even, neat white and grey liners from Southampton, and Hamburg. And along the blue coast, across the Blackwater, my brother could make out a dimly dense swarm of boats, chaffering with people on the beach. A swarm which almost extended up the Blackwater, almost to Molden. About a couple of miles out lay an ironclad, very low in the water. Almost, to my brother's perception, like a waterlogged ship. This was the ram, Thunderchild. It was the only warship in sight, but far away to the right, over the smooth surface of the sea, for that day there was a dead calm, lay a serpent of black smoke to mark the next ironclads of the Channel Fleet, which hovered in extended line, steam up and ready for action, across the Thames estuary during the course of the Martian conquest, vigilant and yet powerless to prevent it. At the sight of the sea, Mrs. Elphinstone, in spite of the assurances of her sister-in-law, gave way to panic. She had never been out of England before. She would rather die than trust herself friendless in a foreign country, and so forth. She seemed, poor woman, to imagine that the French and the Martians might prove very similar. She had been growing increasingly hysterical, fearful, and depressed during the two days' journeying. Her great idea was to return to Stanmore. Things had always been well and safe at Stanmore. They would find George at Stanmore. It was with the greatest difficulty that they could get her down to the beach, where presently my brother succeeded in attracting the attention of some men on a paddle steamer from the Thames. They sent a boat and drove a bargain for £36 for the three. 
The steamer was going, these men said, to Ostend. It was about two o'clock when my brother, having paid their fares at the gateway, found himself safely aboard the steamboat with his charges. There was food aboard, albeit at exorbitant prices, and the three of them contrived to eat a meal on one of the seats forward. There were already a couple of score passengers aboard, some of whom had expended their last money in securing a passage, but the captain lay off the black water until five in the afternoon, picking up passengers until the seated decks were even dangerously crowded. He probably would have remained longer had it not been for the sound of guns that began about that hour in the south. As if in answer, the ironclad, Seaward, fired a small gun and hoisted a string of flags. A jet of smoke sprang out of her funnel. Some of the passengers were of the opinion that this firing came from shubriness, until it was noticed that it was growing louder. At the same time, far away in the southeast, the mast and upworks of three ironclads rose one after the other out of the sea, beneath clouds of black smoke. But my brother's attention speedily reverted to the distant firing in the south. He fancied he saw a column of smoke rising out of the distant grey haze. The little steamer was already flapping her way eastward out of the big crescent of shipping, and the low Essex coast was growing blue and hazy when a Martian appeared, small and faint in the remote distance, advancing along the muddy coast from the direction of Falness. At that, the captain on the bridge swore at the top of his voice with fear and anger at his own delay, and the paddles seemed infected with his tremor. Every soul aboard stood at the bulwarks or on the seats of the steamer and stared at the distant shape, higher than trees or church towers inland, and advancing with the leisurely parody of a human stride. It was the first Martian my brother had seen, and he stood, more amazed than terrified, watching this titan advancing deliberately towards the shipping, wading farther and farther into the water as the coast fell away. Then, far away beyond the crouch, came another, striding over stunted trees, and then yet another, still farther off, wading deeply through a shiny mudflat that seemed to hang halfway between the sea and the sky. They were all stalking seaward, as if to intercept the escape of the multitudinous vessels that were crowded between Falness and the Nays. In spite of the throbbing exertions of the engines of the little paddle boats, and the pouring foam that her wheels flung behind her, she receded with terrifying slowness from this ominous advance. Glancing northwestward, my brother saw the large crescent of the shipping already writhing with the approaching terror. One ship passing behind another, another coming round from broadside, to end on, steamships whistling and giving off volumes of steam, sails being let out, launching, rushing hither and thither. He was so fascinated by this, and by the creeping danger away to the left, that he had no eyes for anything seaward. And then, a swift movement of the steamboat, she had suddenly come round to avoid being run down, flung him headlong from the seat upon which he was standing. There was a shouting all about him, a trampling of feet, and a cheer that seemed to be answered faintly. The steamboat lurched and rolled him over upon his hands. He sprang to his feet and saw to starboard, not a hundred yards from their heeding, pitching boat, a vast iron bulk, like the blade of a plough, tearing through the water, tossing it on either side in huge waves of foam that leapt towards the steamer, flinging her paddles helplessly in the air. 
and then sucking her deck down almost to the waterline. A douche of spray blinded my brother for a moment. When his eyes were clear again, he saw the monster had passed and was rushing landward. Big iron upperworks rose from this headlong structure, and from that, twin funnels projected and spat a smoking blast shot with fire. It was the torpedo ram, Thunderchild, steaming headlong, coming to the rescue of the threatened shipping. Keeping his footing on the heaving deck by clutching the bulwarks, my brother looked past this charging leviathan at the Martians again, and he saw the three of them now close together, and standing so far out to sea that their tripod supports were almost entirely submerged. Thus sunken, and seen in remote perspective, they appeared far less formidable than the huge iron bulk in whose wake the steamer was pitching so helplessly. It would seem that they were regarding this new antagonist with astonishment. To their intelligence, it may be, the giant was even such another as themselves. The Thunderchild fired no gun, but simply drove full speed toward them. It was probably her not firing that enabled her to get so near the enemy as she did. They did not know what to make of her. One shell, and they would have sent her to the bottom, forthwith, with the heat ray. She was steaming at such a pace that, in a minute, she seemed halfway between the steamboat and the Martians, a diminishing black bulk against the receding horizontal expanse of the Essex coast. Suddenly, the foremost Martian lowered his tube and discharged a canister of the black gas at the ironclad. It hit her larboard side and glanced off in an inky jet that rolled away to seaward, an unfolding torrent of black smoke from which the ironclad drove clear. To the watchers from the steamer, low in the water and with the sun in their eyes, it seemed as though she were already among the Martians. They saw gaunt figures separating and rising out of the water as they retreated shoreward, and one of them raised the camera-like generator of the heat ray. He held it, pointing obliquely downward, and a bank of steam sprang from the water at its touch. It must have driven through the iron of the ship's side like a white-hot iron through paper. A flicker of flame went through the rising steam, and then the Martian reeled and staggered. In another moment, he was cut down, and a great body of water and steam shot high in the air. The guns of the Thunderchild sounded through the reek, going off one after another, and one shot splashed the water high close by the steamers, ricocheted towards the other flying ships to the north, and smashed a smack to Matchwood. But no one heeded that very much. At the sight of the Martians' collapse, the captain on the bridge yelled inarticulately, and all the crowding passengers on the steamer's stern shouted together, and then they yelled again. For, surging out beyond the white tumult, drove something long and black, the flames streaming from its middle parts, its ventilators and funnels spouting fire. She was alive still. The steering gear, it seems, was intact, and her engines working. She headed straight for a second Martian, and was within a hundred yards of him when the heat ray came to bear. Then, with a violent thud, a blinding flash, her decks, her funnels, leapt upwards. The Martian staggered with the violence of her explosion, and in another moment, the flaming wreckage, still driving forward with the impetus of its pace, 
had struck him and crumpled him like a thing of cardboard. My brother shouted involuntarily. A boiling tumult of steam hid everything. Two! yelled the captain. Everyone was shouting. The whole steamer from end to end rang with frantic cheering that was taken up first by one and then by all in the crowding multitude of ships and boats that was driving out to sea. The steam hung upon the water for many minutes, hiding the third Martian and the coast altogether. And all this time, the boat was paddling steadily out to sea and away from the fight. And when at last the confusion cleared, the drifting bank of black vapour was intervened, and nothing of the Thunderchild could be made out, nor could the third Martian be seen. But the ironclads to seaward were now quite close and standing in towards the shore past the steamboat. The little vessel continued to beat its way seaward, and the ironclads receded slowly toward the coast, which was hidden still by a marbled bank of vapour, part steam, part black gas, eddying and combining in the strangest way. The fleet of refugees was scattering toward the northeast. Several smacks were sailing between the ironclads and the steamboat. After a time, and before they reached the sinking cloud bank, the warships turned northward and then abruptly went about and passed into the thickening haze of evening southward. The coast grew faint, and at last indistinguishable amid the low banks of clouds that were gathering about the sinking sun. Then suddenly, out of the golden haze of sunset, came the vibration of guns, and a form of black shadows moving. Everyone struggled to the rail of the steamer, and peered into the blinding surface of the west but nothing was to be distinguished clearly. A mass of smoke rose, slanting and barred the face of the sun. The steamboat throbbed on its way through an interminable suspense. The sun sank into the grey clouds, the sky flushed and darkened, the evening star trembled into sight. It was deep twilight when the captain cried out and pointed. My brother strained his eyes, Something rushed up into the sky out of the greyness, rushed slantingly upward and very swiftly into the numerous clearances above the clouds in the western sky. Something flat and broad and very large that swept round in a vast curve, grew smaller, sank slowly and vanished again into the grey mystery of the night. And as it flew, it rained down darkness upon the land. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcasts, please leave a review, share it around, get it in front of many people as possible. It would really mean so much to me. That is the end of book one. In a couple of days, we'll be starting book two, The Earth Under the Martians. Please join me for that. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time... Bye-bye.